Friendship, the podcast where friends assign pop culture homework to each other. I'm Alex. And I'm Kate. The way this works is, every episode, one of us assigns a favorite book, movie, or TV show to the other. Then we discuss the assignment. It's really pretty simple. Just so you know, any and all plot points are up for discussion. So if you don't want spoilers for the episode's assignment, you should probably not listen. Today, I assigned Kate a Martin McDonough double feature... His 2008 film In Bruges, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and the follow-up, which is 2012's Seven Psychopaths. So, we're going to do a little background before we jump right on into what Kate has to say. Martin McDonough, for those who don't know, is an Irish playwright turned film director and also is still a playwright. So he's known in particular for his first sort of thematically interconnected trilogy of plays, the Linane Trilogy, which are a little more sort of absurdist, influenced by Samuel Beckett, if that's your jam. Kate's shaking her head, apparently it's not her jam. <laughs> and then his second trilogy, the Aran Islands Trilogy, which includes what is probably his most well-known play, The Lieutenant of Inishmore, which is about the sadistic leader of an IRA splinter faction who goes berserk when somebody kills his cat, which is relevant if you've seen Seven Psychopaths. That's or why Keanu. I, that's or Keanu. Although neither neither Bonnie or Keanu dies. I think we can all agree that that's because very you can important. kill the woman in a movie, but not the animals. True facts, <laughs> as stated by Sam Rockwell. We'll yep. get to that. So that's a little bit about Martin McDonough. I guess we can jump on right in. Kate. Yeah. Kate has a lot of thoughts about these films. <laughs> I do. I saw them yesterday, and I did watch them back to back. That, that was brave. Yeah. You did. Um, so it was pretty intense. I really actually did enjoy both movies, genuinely. That is not the impression that I got from reading your notes about them. <laughs> So I was like, oh god, she hates it. No, no. So I, so the way that I write my notes is very stream of consciousness, so I feel like the all caps could probably be inflected in a variety of ways that you encountered. I mean, there was literally a note in the middle of the Seven Psychopaths note that says, I don't fucking understand why Alice <laughs> likes this movie. <laughs> so like, that seemed pretty unambiguous. So I think that in particular was just like the moment where is it Myra? Yes, gets her Watkins murdered. Oh and my god! I was just really upset about that, and I was like, "The fuck, Alex? Why?" But I do think they're both very obviously well written, and the fact that he is a playwright actually makes a lot of sense. He has really phenomenal dialogue. That's one of the things that I love about both films. Well, and he's very good about... Obviously, Seven Psychopaths has more characters in it, but both have well, relatively... I at least seven. <laughs> right. Supposed to, like, four. <laughs> right, but I think that the fact that there's such sparse casts and the way that a lot of the scenes are... I even want to use the word blocked. Yeah. Um, no, I totally know what you mean. I think there's definitely a very... MFA quality to the movies, which I think totally makes sense as to why you like them. And, and they're really great to see. Like the in Bruges, I've never been to Bruges. Um, Neither have I. I really want to go. It, right. Like it's so good at capturing kind of the dark romanticism of it. Fucking fairy tale. If you're a person who like lives in Bruges, if you're a Bruges inhabitant, like how much do you hate this film? Well, I can only I imagine Just, like, not because, like, you don't like the way it portrays Bruges even, but, like, how many tourists do you have to hear on a daily basis saying things like, if I was from a farm and was retarded, Bruges might impress me. Like, <laughs> like how much do you hate this movie just because of the way it disrupts your daily life? I can only imagine. I actually think that was part of one of the things I wrote at some point was something like... But didn't this movie really boost tourism to Bruges? Like, how off the map is it now that there's a movie called In Bruges? I mean, to be fair, it's not, like, a blockbuster movie. It's a cult movie. (laughs) So, like, you know, it's not, like, that island off the coast of Ireland where Luke is at the end of The Force Awakens that now they're having to tell people, like... 
please stop stepping on the 1500 year old graves that are on this island when you come here to like reenact the end of the force awakens so we don't think it's quite to that, that extent. point yep but also probably the people who go to bruges are like really into it so they're probably more annoying Right. So there's, you know, pros and cons. <laughs> you're right, you're right. But in general, I did, I did, they're both really funny. I would That's agree with that. Deeply. They're really, deeply really funny. funny. <laughs> in a way that, like, only stories that have really poignant emotional moments can be. Uh, obviously, comedies are usually just straight comedies, but I find that a lot of my so, favorite like, we comedies... are not watching the same comedies, well, but all right. Right, but that's what I was going to get at, is that I think you can make a very strong argument that the best comedies are actually dramas, like these two movies, where there's a lot of dark stuff happening, but because it's so dark, you need those moments of levity to balance them out. And I would probably argue that there are more moments of levity even on multiple viewings of these than I probably perceived in my one viewing of them. There are definitely a lot. At least in In Bruges, which I've seen about a million times at this point. (laughs) If I had to guess, if I had to put a number on it, yeah, would say a million. And there were so many times that I just loved the dialogue so much that instead of writing a real note, I would just write verbatim what was said because I wanted to, like, keep it for posterity's sake. I quote in Bruges all the time, like, on a weekly basis, probably. My husband and I like to yell at each other, like, when I get mad at my computer or something, he'll just, we'll just yell at each other, like, it's an inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object. object. That was a great moment. I enjoyed that. (laughs) And then, like, later on, one of us will be like, Sorry that I called you an inanimate object. <laughs> Ray Fiennes does such a good job in this movie. Everybody in... I think both movies, really, and again, I think this probably goes back to a little bit of the sort of staginess of both of them. They both have just phenomenal cast. Like, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell and Ray Fiennes are all fantastic. And then the interplay in Seven Psychopaths between Colin Farrell... Sam Rockwell and Christopher Walken is just a delight. I love Sam Rockwell so much. He is one of my favorite actors and I it's because he's so good at being so good at whatever absurd thing he is trying to be. Oh yeah. Whether it's Zephod Beeblebrox yep. or the bad guy in Charlie's Angels. He's also the bad guy in Iron Man 2, the worst Iron Man film. Or in Matchstick Men, which was a movie I really enjoyed. He wasn't the villain, though, but, yeah. like, he was in it. It's have, a thing that happened. Have you seen Moon? I've not. He's really great in Moon, too. She was Moon. If, I, you, if you're a Rockwell fan, it's just, like, 90 minutes of uninterrupted Rockwell. That sounds amazing. So that sounds should, like a thing that I need to have in You should definitely check it out. <laughs> but, yeah, so I definitely enjoyed yeah. that. So, I, I love Rockwell's character in Seven Psychopaths, and I will put out there, I think In Bruges is a better movie than Seven Psychopaths. I think Seven Psychopaths is more ambitious, and thus it is messier, and it has bits that sort of just veer off and then maybe go somewhere later, but sometimes they don't, really. And I really like it for that, and I really love what McDonough was doing, and I think it's like, really interesting, and I actually, I rewatched it for the podcast. I hadn't seen it after, like, the first time I saw it in theaters when, because I was obsessed with In Bruges, I was like, opening night, we're doing this, Seven Psychopaths, it's happening. (laughs) And I watched it again, and I actually came away, like, liking it more after repeat viewing, so maybe if I watch it as many times as I've watched In Bruges, I will end up thinking it is the superior film, but generally I do think In Bruges is a better movie. I would agree with that. I think... It has more of a range, and it's more... I was more deeply impacted by watching it, both in terms of laughter and being upset. I can... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas Seven Psychopaths is so met, So meta. So, so meta. I feel like it could be worse, And but so, like, MFA thesis script that... It's fun to watch, and it's really compelling and thoughtful, and like you said, there's a lot more 
mental acrobatics happening in it. But because it doesn't have such a simple story, sometimes simple stories are the ones that impact you the most, right? I can see that. So I think in Bruges, because it has a very simple goal, is a lot easier to do well and enjoy on a first round than something like Seven Psychopaths. I can see that. So let's chat a little bit about some possible readings of these movies because they obviously both even in Bruges which is much simpler clearly has a lot going on oh my god so so many Hieronymus Bosch references well that gets into it's like it's just a clusterfuck and I love it and I hate it at the same time because I don't actually like Hieronymus Bosch paintings all that much but I know a lot about them because I majored in art history so have I ever wanted to spend time in Hieronymus Bosch painting Absolutely not. Like, if there was a painting that you had to be in in real life, I feel like the worst possible outcome would be the, like... So this... I, I Stop me if this is redundant at any point. But the um, painting... Or one of the paintings that they look at is, like, a Final Judgment triptych. Yeah. But um, the one that is sort of the piece that everybody knows from Hieronymus Bosch is a triptych that is the Garden of Earthly Delights. Yeah. But one of the panels on it is a panel that's just, like, what his vision of hell is. Yeah. Which I think, again, like, this movie kind of hits you over the head with, like, Bruges is hell kind of thing. I don't know if that's actually... So the reading I actually had that I wanted to talk about a little is more that Bruges is purgatory Mm. for... Ray, in particular, for right. Colin Farrell's character. And I think you can also read the sort of sojourn in the desert in Joshua Tree National Park in Seven Psychopaths as a bit purgatorial as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Martin McDonough, as the presumably, you know, Catholic-raised Irish boy that he is, is very interested in the question of the afterlife and in where you end up and what kind of actions make you end up in different places and if the afterlife exists and ideas of justice and of moral codes and things like that but in a specifically kind of religious framework so the Hieronymus Bosch paintings really work well for that but I sort of think of that scene as Ray is in this sort of purgatorial space whether it's actually you know supposed to be literally purgatory or not like I don't know that I would argue that it's supposed to be literally purgatory but it's kind of this purgatorial space right where Ray has done something really awful but because Ray is like For somebody who is a hitman who just murdered a child by accident and also murdered a priest not by accident, like, he's almost kind of an innocent, right? The way his character is written. And so he ends up in this sort of space where he's neither in heaven nor in hell. He's just in this holding pattern. And so I think you can read kind of the the sojourn looking at the Bosch paintings as, like, maybe it's, it's Ray getting a glimpse into one possible future, which is the hellish future, which is the I'm going to hell because I murdered a child and a priest future, which I think is really intriguing. So I interpreted it more as hell because in the climactic end of the story they run through this dream sequence yeah the movie right they're filmed midgets by the way another amazing quote but this film oh my god but seriously something they're filming filming midgets um if you look in the background like there are very clear references to Hieronymus Bosch's imagery in hell in yeah, particular. That's true. And I think um even uh, Chloe says like earlier in the movie that the dream sequence is a reference to Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, but it's also like very clearly supposed to be like this this Boschian inspired imagery. Right? right. So I for whatever reason in that moment the idea of like he can't out run the guilt that he's like put on himself for killing a child yeah right is kind of culminating in that moment to a certain degree i could see that i also think i don't know for me it's relevant that by the end of that scene as you see you know from his point of view him being put in the ambulance and like take taken away and you see some of these other the the kind of 
better characters that he's encountered, right? Like, so you see Chloe, who's, like, his chance at love, and you see Marie, who's, like, just amazing and wonderful and, you know, kind of, like, the representative of, like, no, this is, like, a normal life. Like, running a hotel and having a child and, you know, all of this. She's she's almost sort of the the representative of, like, the normal family happy life that he could have. And he says... You know, he has this realization that maybe hell is just an eternity spent in fucking Bruges. And he says, and I really hoped I didn't die. Which is a big about face from the dude who, like, holds a gun to his head in the park earlier in the movie. So, to me, it's sort of this narrative of, like, Ray almost, I guess, coming to terms with what he's done. If you can come to terms with what he's done. And realizing that he wants to live. Which is kind of... The opposite narrative, almost, of where Seven Psychopaths ends, right? So Seven Psychopaths ends officially, I guess, in this sort of, like, weirdly, jarringly atonal, like, shot of Marty, like, finishing his movie and getting up and he, like, goes out and he leaves. He's living in Sam Rockwell's character's house with the dog and, like, leaves and goes walking out into the Los Angeles sunlight and there's, like, happy music playing and stuff. And then the credits start to roll and then the credits cut out and it goes to him at night in this sort of, like, red-lit, like, noirish setting and... He gets the phone call from Zachariah, who says, you didn't put my message in the movie, I'm going to kill you. And he's just really, he's just like, yeah, that's fine. You do that. So it's almost this opposite trajectory of In Bruges, which I find to be weirdly intriguing. I don't know. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense if you're putting them together and kind of looking at the ultimate trajectory of the character. I think you're right that Ray starts the movie emotionally in a very hopeless place and weirdly through all of the weirdness that is what happens to him while he's there decides that he does want to live right so it's like this sense of hope whereas i feel like marty just goes from being like a normal dude the decent happy life yeah to like clusterfuckery well and i think it's relevant too right that like Ray ends up in his situation. It's his own fault. He right. becomes a hitman, and he's not very good at it, and he accidentally kills a kid. Whereas Marty just kind of gets, like, drawn into Billy and Hans's shenanigans, and particularly Billy's shenanigans, right? Because you find out that Billy knew exactly who Bonnie belonged to, and knew that he was, like, this psychotic criminal overlord, and also is simultaneously waging a one-man war against, like, this guy's forces. (laughs) So it's less Marty's fault in the second movie. I think he kind of just gets pulled into this nonsense, which I guess you could argue is another reading of Seven Psychopaths, which is kind of the obvious one, right, is, like, Marty trying to work out his writer's block and doing that by becoming a character in this story, right? And then you have Billy and Hans as kind of the two different ways that he can go with his film, right? Where you have Billy who comes up with his climactic end to the movie, which is just everybody getting murdered in a, like, over-the-top Tarantino-plus, like, shootout in a graveyard, like, as dramatically and bloodily as possible. And then you have Hans who ends up getting the last word of the two of them because you listen to the tape recording that he made after he dies who takes the story that Marty has already started about this, you know, former Viet Cong soldier who goes on the revenge rampage and turns it into something, turns it from a story about, like, blood and vengeance to a story that is ultimately about, like, protest and... Maybe not hope, but an attempt to do something positive rather than an attempt to avenge himself upon people. Like an attempt to prevent violence from happening rather than furthering more violence. Right, like going full into... So I subscribe to that interpretation of the film. I mean, I think that's the pretty obvious one. Especially because Colin Farrell's character is literally named Marty. Marty. Like he's an Irish writer named Marty. Right, and I think it makes so much more sense sense as a sort of dream almost right of like what 
the actual author-director felt like in the process of writing the story. That's possibly true. And I mean, I one of the things I really like about it, right, is that it, it telegraphs its intentions fairly early on. You have Marty saying, you know, I don't want to write this movie about, like, violence and vengeance and gunfights. I want to, you know, just, like, write a movie about, like, like, like peace and hope and what if we just had this movie that's set up like it's gonna be this crazy revenge flick and then the main characters just went out to the desert for the second half and hung out and talked and then they go out to the desert for the second half and hang out and talk but then of course right like sam rockwell's character kind of rests the narrative back from him by the end and goes out guns blazing in a fight with woody harrelson which is clearly what he wanted to do. So I think we need to spend at least some time talking about the amazing acting work of Bonnie the dog. Bonnie the dog is a goddamn delight. Bonnie the dog, <laughs> since his first appearance on screen, was my favorite character in this movie. I mean, how could he not be? And I am really happy with how it turned out. He definitely gave Sam Rockwell the paw that he wanted. He did. And it was it's, delightful. It's so touching. And he gets like, a paw at the end. Shih tzus are hilarious looking dogs. I know, he's so They're stupid. They're absurd. And it's amazing to have this absurd dog as the central <laughs> emotional purpose of this movie. But I mean, of course, I think to some extent that's... That's the intended reaction, obviously, because you have an adorable dog. But it's also, right, like, Martin McDonough, I think, trying to provoke you a little bit into thinking about why that is. Because, of course, he has the great line in Billy's ending of the movie that he mentions earlier, where he's like, because it's okay to kill the women as long as the animals are safe. Right? And it's like this movie where, like, the female characters are fairly thinly drawn, and where you have Woody Harrelson, who, and Sam Rockwell both, like, treat various women like garbage throughout the entire movie. But you're like, no, it's cool, because they both love the shit out of this dog. And I think, you know, he puts that in the screenplay to make you, like, think about it a little bit. Like, okay, but why is this your reaction? Like, why are these two both sympathetic? Because I find them, even They're Woody Harrelson- terrible people. But I, I also- actually hate them both. I just like Sam Rockwell, so he makes that character likable for me. I find Sam Rockwell's character a little bit sympathetic. I mean... I think think, he is. I I, think of the two of them, he's clearly supposed to be... Woody Harrelson is maybe not, but... No, he's awful. (laughs) But Sam Rockwell's character, right, I mean, he's very... He's obviously very violent, and he causes a lot of problems, but he is... He's very childish, right? He's almost more like Ray, I think, in, in Bruges and... Some combination of Hans and Marty is playing the Brendan Gleeson role. I think that, especially right when you have the scene with, like, Marty reading his diary, and he's like, stop asking Marty if you can help him write the movie. If he wants to let you, he'll let you. And it's just, like, such this, like, moment of, like, self-aware clarity for, like, this really childish, selfish guy. And it's just sort of adorable. I don't know. And then when Marty says, you can help me write the movie, and he's so excited. Yeah. And then, of course, Marty finds out that he's been, like, carving a murder trail through the Los Angeles mob, which is interesting. Agreed. I mean, like, that part, I actually, like, for whatever reason, just... I think part of the interpretation or part of what goes for me into the viewing process of this movie, because I interpret it as a giant mental exercise for the author-director, is that I don't really care about any of the like random collateral damage because I've decided that this is a mental exercise and none of these people are real people. Which obviously falls apart when you start talking about like the more prominent characters that you do emotionally connect with. But even then, I think I almost care more about the abstract concepts that they represent more than I care about them as people. You don't care about Hans and Myra as people. Hans and Myra. I love them as, like, well, I think think they are adorable, but they're like, their whole thing, right, is like how unconditional love can help you care about someone who's clearly, like, a crazy flawed person. That's true. Because Myra's the nice person in that relationship. 
I mean, and Christopher Walken obviously loves her, right? But he also kidnaps dogs for a living. I mean, Myra's also, like, the nice person who helps Christopher Walken slash is an equal partner in his, like, vengeance vendetta against, like, the guy who killed their daughter. So, I don't know that you can say she's, like, the nicer person. I did not, for whatever reason, interpret her... I guess that is part of what's revealed. Oh, so that's the other part of it, too, is that I basically decided... So there's a very clear, like, act one and act two to this movie. Yeah, act two is the desert. I decided that literally everything that happened in act two was, like, a whole other new level of crazy bullshit mental exercise that none of this is real. And I'm not sure... I think because of that conversation they have in the car... Where, like you said, they have this meta moment of, like, let's just go hash out your movie by doing the thing you want to do in the second half of your movie. That I decided that, like, any character revelations we got or any, like, new information about characters was all part of that, like, brainstorming exercise of, like, where can these stories go? So, in my mind, especially because isn't it sort of part of the Sam Rockwell reenacting the script that he's come up with where you find out that Myra No, it's when they're on the way out to the desert and they're in the restaurant and Sam Rockwell goes to get drinks and Christopher Walken's character says to Marty, tell me a story and he starts telling him the story about the Quaker psychopath that Billy had told him and then you realize that like that's Christopher Walken's character. So it is it's in the beginning of the second act, I think. It's in sort of the bridge between the first and the second act. And yeah. he, you know, he corrects things. He says, like, our daughter was black and my wife was with me helping me the whole time. And, like, I didn't actually die, obviously. <laughs> I guess also part of it must have been, I think I confused a chunk of that story. Or at least, if not confused, decided that they were overlapping considerably with Zachariah's story. I mean, they do have sort of similar vibes, which kind of gets back to, like, Martin McDonough's thing for violent men who have, like, black wives who are kind of their, like, humanizing feature in some ways, right? Which is the case with Ken, you find out, in kind of just a story that he tells in In Bruges during the whole section where they're all high on cocaine, and, uh... There's the war of the blacks and the whites. The, the racist midget tells the story about the war between the blacks and the whites, and which is, I think, a really great example of what you were talking about, was sort of the, the swerves between comedy and like really deeply felt emotion that obviously this is just hilarious because they're all really high and the guy, this guy is just going on this ridiculous rant and like every time they ask him a question he's just like he's clearly a white supremacist <laughs> right because he's just like no everyone's gonna fight with the blacks and then ken cuts in with his story saying my wife was black and i loved her very very deeply and she was killed by a white man and what do you think i should do <laughs> right and you're like oh shit which, like, Brendan Gleeson, who's amazing, who I love, totally sells, also leads to, if you have a chance to watch deleted scenes from In Bruges, there's one on the DVD, but you can find it on the internet, too. In the original cut of the film, or in the original script, I don't know if it's at that moment or if it's at a different moment, but there's a flashback to young Ken. Is it Matt Smith? No. no. Ken, young Ken is somebody else, but young Harry is Matt Smith. Yes! And Matt Smith <laughs> finds young Ken, like, mourning his wife, who's clearly just been murdered by somebody, turns right around, goes to the police station, like, walks into a police station, finds the guy who shot her, whips out a katana, and cuts his head off. Amazing. And it's absurd, but I think it would have maybe really undercut that moment a little bit. It would have. so over the top, but it's really funny if you're looking for a fun deleted scene to watch ever. <laughs> I also think it, but it does sort of explain why, I mean, you do find out, right, because of the conversation they have in the bell tower, why but, he's so loyal to Harry. Yeah. But, um, that's really funny. <laughs> but I think it's it's something, right, that gets into a lot of the questions that In Bruges is asking, like, specifically and explicitly asking 
are these people who do bad things, but maybe do them because of their own kind of moral code reasons? Like, are they doomed to hell because of the things they've done, right? Like, Ken is very loyal to Harry, but he's very loyal to Harry because, like, when this horrible, life-shattering thing happened to him, like, Harry was there to be like, I'm gonna take care of it, right? As much as you can. And sort of similarly with Ray, that Ray obviously does something really awful, but he does it kind of out of incompetence, almost. And, you know, he does kill the priest intentionally, but presumably if the priest was being targeted by Harry, he's probably not, like, the best guy ever. Maybe he is, but he's probably not, like, blameless. He so. is Mance Raider. It's true, and Mance Raider is wonderful, so... So... Maybe he shouldn't have done that. Let it be known. But... I think it's, like, it's asking a lot of these questions. And I think similarly, right, Seven Psychopaths gets into these types of things where you have Hans and Myra going after this guy who murdered their daughter. And it's implied did some other stuff to her as well, I think, pretty heavily. Similarly, you have Zachariah and Maggie taking out other serial killers, but doing it, and particularly in Maggie's case, in these really, like, horrible, sadistic ways. And... Then you have Billy, who is killing people, but up until he kills Charlie's girlfriend is mostly, like, he kills two hitmen in the opening scene. It's like, well, they're both hitmen, so, like, how bad should we really feel about this? So it gets into these, like, questions that I think allow him to kind of get at this these questions about the afterlife and about where people end up as a result of their actions. So I thought about the themes of morality and like codes of honor versus previous actions versus intentions right like that fucking honor (laughs) that whole like um interplay right i think the way i wound up interpreting a lot of it was that these were all i guess like essentially bad people actually like i took like the opposite tack of like I think these are all essentially bad people who at some point realize that they are bad people. And no one lives with themselves thinking, I'm a shit person. That's true. So they then kind of re, like, what's the word? Um, Reverse engineer an honor code or, like, some sort of system to adhere to to make them feel better about, like, what they've been doing. But ultimately you can't erase the fact that they are bad people and have made shitty decisions because they're bad people. Um, Because nobody... Like, there's not... I feel like none of these people came from enough of a disadvantage or something to, like, have been forced into whatever life of crime or whatever actions they committed. They all had some sort of... You don't know their backstories, Kate. They might have. I don't think so. Like, I, I feel like we we spend it, like, where we pick up on their lives anyway, they all seem to be people who, like, had a very clear choice of, like, you can either do this or you can do this crazy murderous thing. And all of them were like, yeah, crazy murderous thing. I mean, that's true. And I think at some level, like, and maybe this is me armchair philosophizing from a first world country where I've never had to make this kind of decision or something. But again, these stories all take place in the first world yeah, and they all take place. place in these like, like if, um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm blanking on his name. Um, the, uh, not Ray, the other one in, in Bruce. Ken. Ken. Ken could have gone to the police. He could have waited for justice in that way, right? Theoretically. It is implied that his wife was killed by a police officer, at least in the flashback. I don't know if it is in the movie itself. I don't... Not... I didn't get that impression. In the flashback, like, it is actually the the guy that Ray kills for killing his wife as a police officer. So so that's different. But, like, in my viewing of it, it's like he chose to get revenge instead. Or, like, Ray didn't have to... Like... At one point, he woke up and was like, you know what would be awesome? Being a hitman. Or his girlfriend, Chloe? Chloe, yeah. Um, was like, well, I'm gonna steal things from tourists and also be a drug dealer. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, none of these people are like... I don't think that Chloe was born in the inner city. 
I Does don't Scrooge have an inner saint? I don't think that Chloe like grew up in the projects and had no way out except for being a drug dealer and stealing things from people. I feel like she just enjoyed the thrill of it or something that then subsequently led to her making these choices. So I think that's part of why I see it more the other way around of like, these are shitty people who are trying to reconcile with the fact that they're shitty people and can't. So then they create these like honor systems and stuff. And I agree that Ken is probably an exception because he is someone who clearly has like a lot of empathy and like stands by his decision to not and believes in redemption. Yeah. Right. And I think that's also something that does not come up anywhere near as much in seven psychopaths. I don't think redemption really gets discussed in any I mean, meaningful it, ways. It does to some extent in that Hans does not accept the redemption of the guy who killed his daughter because it, you know, in that story, in that backstory, like that guy really turned his life around. Like he went from being a murderer to like being deeply, truly repentant. And isn't the whole point though, that it was himself and it was his own evil nature that turned out to be the Quaker. That was not what I got out of it. So, so yeah. So maybe part of it is that, I mean, like I saw this movie once yesterday so like i'm not sure like exactly but that would explain the difference in interpretation i mean you possibly could interpret it that way i think you can interpret seven psychopaths in particular in a lot of different ways and i'm not arguing that any of the people in either of these movies are good people Mm -hmm. marty comes the closest which is why it's kind of hilarious like the running joke about his alcoholism is kind of hilarious i think because first of all he's clearly an alcoholic but also like On the spectrum? He's constantly being called out for his alcoholism by, like, people who, at best, are kidnapping dogs to, like, ransom them back, and at worst, are straight up cutting a swath of destruction. Of, like, serial killer, like, just (laughs) so insane. Through Los Angeles. So it's like, guys, maybe, like, Marty's alcoholism is not what we should be discussing here. (laughs) I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that whole alcoholism struggle that he had. Also, I love, there was at some point a line that was like, oh, Marty's my writer friend. And then I think Christopher Walken character is like, oh yeah, I smelled it. All writers are alcoholics or something like that. And I was like, oh man, that's been true in my life. The people I know who are super into writing are definitely also if not actually alcoholics, like, only marginally not alcoholics. I mean, it's a stereotype, right, of, like, the tortured writer, I think. I just... Hemingway was super sober all the time. Although, also, to be fair, if you were Marty, and, like, he's clearly drunk at the beginning, but, like, later on, you've been swept up in this scheme that started with your friend who was a dog napper, and now, like, you're being hunted by a psychotic mobster, and then you find out that your friend, whose fault it is, has been, like, killing all of the psychotic mobster's goons. Like, you might also want to drink. So I think the thing, right, is that it's, like, now, in this this moment in Marty's life, is not the time to start thinking about not being an alcoholic. No. He needs to clear some stuff from his plate before he has time to really give it the attention that it deserves because he's got some major stressors out there. He does. His only source of comfort is our buddy Bonnie. <laughs> it's true. I love Bonnie. Who, to be fair, is a wonderful source of comfort because he's adorable. He is so damn fluffy. He's I the fluffiest. love it. It's amazing. I do want to talk about at some point though the whole like you can kill the women but you can't kill the animals why don't we talk about that now yeah so like wtf man and like i get so i do think that that whole conversation between the three characters in that scene part of again like i interpret it right as this is all just different facets of like the author director's way of think like yeah. thought process, right, in writing stories. No, I stories. think that's a really legit way to interpret that. So, if we if we take that, it's literally him sitting down, writing the screenplay, being like, 
people get really mad at me for writing shitty women characters. And, like, this movie came out in 2012 and In Bruges came out in 2008. Yeah. So, In Bruges is probably the movie that he's thinking about having which is, been criticized which for. Which is interesting, because I think In Bruges has much more developed female characters than Seven Psychopaths does. is the actual worst. Chloe is not the actual worst. She is... And I can't even handle that you think that, because like, I really enjoy her. Both... So I watched this movie with my boyfriend, and both of us were watching this, and we're just like, why does she even like him? Like, everything he's saying is horrible. Like, when they're, when she, I mean, like, he hits on her at the coffee stand or whatever, at the, like, catering tent for the movie. Yeah. He just says, like, a series of really insensitive, just, like, horrible, not helpful things, and her response is, awesome, I'm gonna give you my number. I mean... To be fair, her whole thing is that she deals drugs to visiting film crews and robs tourists for money. So maybe that's the sort of thing that she goes in for. Right. So like, like I think these might be her preferences. <laughs> but she was just going to rob him. Like, that's not like... And then instead of robbing him, she's like, oh, after our dinner where not only did you say a bunch of more shitty stuff... You beat the shit out of two people for no reason. I'm now going to willingly have sex with you, and now I want to be your girlfriend, and I'm in love with you. And you're like, why, though? I mean, once again, I feel like Chloe might have some pathologies at play that are contributing to this. (laughs) So her idea of a legitimate career move is dealing drugs and robbing tourists. (laughs) Which, honestly, is one of the things that I like, because I think that... In a stupider movie, like, you would end up with a character like Ray, who's, like, this tortured gangster murderer person, who would have a love interest who's just kind of a straightforward, like, just beautiful girl who's not super interesting, and it's just kind of like your Bond girl thing, right? But isn't that basically who she is? But it's not who she is, because she clearly has a lot of other stuff going on. So, I feel like... The point of her being someone who kills tourists... She doesn't the, kill them, she robs them. Robs them, I'm sorry. Is the justification of her ex-boyfriend showing up and being angry, one. And two, the whole point of her being a drug dealer is so that they can have the stupid cocaine argument in like 20 minutes. So part of me feels like it's plot device, not like her being interesting. I mean, it is a movie, like, <laughs> no, but like, certain things have to happen. <laughs> I know, but, and maybe it's just like, I didn't find her com- performance compelling oh, or man, something. Oh man, I love the, I love that actress, Clemence Poesy, who, fun fact, if you want to talk in Bruges, of the four main characters, three of them are like major Harry Potter characters. So she is Fleur Delacour, oh. Ray Fiennes is Voldemort. And uh, Brendan Gleeson is Horace Slughorn. So I thought I recognized all of them. And you can why. see them all in a much more kid-friendly, entertaining <laughs> property. <laughs> I don't know. I just like that she's, like, she's dark and weird and messed up, but she's very unapologetic about it. And she's just kind of like, yeah, like, this guy, he seems like a good time. Plus, he looks like Colin Farrell, which doesn't hurt anybody at all. So the conclusion I came to when I asked myself these rhetorical questions of like, why is this happening? Was that the answer was because it's Colin Farrell, which I acknowledge for a lot of women is a legitimate answer. I can't believe you're about to say what you're about to say. Well, I was, no, we're going to keep this totally objective. We're not going to make it about his attractiveness or not. But I feel like... Which you can't deny. It is undeniable. But I feel like she sticks her neck out in a very dangerous way to hang out with this dude who, like, she... Like, there's got to be at least one other hot dude in Bruges that she can have sex with. I mean, but I think you could make... First of all, not as hot as Colin Farrell. (laughs) But I think you could also write... You could make that argument about Ken. Ken sticks his neck out for Ray, this guy who he has probably known for, like, a few weeks. Like, sticks his neck out, turns against Harry, who's, like, been one of his close friends and business associates for at least several decades, as is implied in his story about his wife. So, like, why why would Ken do that? Because Ken 
sees himself in Ray, and I think in the same way that he hopes that there's some sort of redemption for his life as a hitman, I think he wants Ray to have that and to have a way of getting out and all that good stuff. Well, maybe Chloe sees an alternate future with Ray in the same way that I think he sort of sees one with her. That they, maybe there's an alternate future there that they both see something that, like, you know, this could be okay. This could work out. We could be a couple. We could maybe do something about the current state of our lives. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> just playing devil's advocate. But, you know, regardless, I think... Um, it's interesting that, um, so that's the character that I have in my reference point, right? When we're watching Seven Psychopaths and he's talking about his, like, female characters and the choices that he makes. And I, part of me loves the, like, very not PC line of, like, well, why don't we just call it seven disabled lesbians who overcome their, like, their troubles. And two of them are black. And two of them are black. (laughs) And I get that, right? That, like, yeah. you know, authors have to, like, be able to tell the stories that they want to tell. So then, like, the whole, like, diversity and, like, blah, 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 blah. So I get that. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious. Yeah. But I think he also, I think, addresses it just so that he can be like, I'm not doing this. And then you, <laughs> I love in Sam Rockwell, or what's his character's name? Billy's, like vision for the end of the movie. Yeah. The way that Marty's girlfriend comes back and she's wearing like a see-through white t-shirt with no bra in the middle of the rain and how she gets shot everywhere but her boobs and in such a way that she's just like shaking them so you can yeah. really see them before she falls down. Oh no, I mean that's I think there's a, a giant fuck you. <laughs> I mean I think there's there's a critical argument to be made about whether like hanging a lampshade on the female characters like actually addresses what he's doing. I will say that in my perusal of Martin McDonough's Wikipedia page, he has written several plays that have female protagonists. Also His next project, which is due to come out next year in 2017, is a film called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, whose main character is Frances McDormand, who's playing a woman whose daughter was murdered and who basically tries to, like, shame the sheriff in her town, played by Woody Harrelson, and his deputy, played by Sam Rockwell, Sam, into, like, into investigating it more and into doing something about it. I will watch that. Yeah. No, you don't even know the best part about it, though. Because oh, okay. the fourth lead in this film, after Frances McDormand, Woody Harrelson, and Sam Rockwell, Peter fucking Dinklage. Yes! That's amazing. <laughs> Tyrion motherfucking Lannister. I'm In excited. a Martin McDonough film. This is delightful. This is wonderful news. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think that that's even, like, I would even argue that I love Myra as a character. Myra is great. I think she has a lot of depth. And Mm. actually, even though it didn't make sense for, like, other thoughts I've already shared on this podcast about her and her relationship with Christopher Walken, she would actually be much more kind of interesting and cool if she was also the murder lady from the Zodiac killing. I mean, I think in some ways... You can, um, right, just given the basic sort of plot synopsis that is up on IMDb about three billboards outside Emming, Missouri, I think you could argue that, like, Frances McDormand is sort of playing that character, right? She's playing, like, this woman whose daughter was murdered, and she's basically, like, trying to go it alone and, like, get some sort of justice for it. So it might be that he wrote Seven Psychopaths and was like, hey, that's a story. I want to explore that more. Yeah. So along the lines of, like, seeds in one movie that turn into another thing in another movie. You want to talk about the Vietnam War? What the fuck (laughs) is Martin's deal with the Vietnamese? I feel like, does he have a relative who fought in Vietnam? I mean, I think probably not. Is his girlfriend Vietnamese? Because he's Irish. Is his boyfriend Vietnamese? What is happening? I mean, I think (laughs) this goes back to sort of his thing, right, about like looking at very, like, morally murky situations, right? Which, if anything was ever morally murky, it was probably the Vietnam War. Like, why was that happening? Like, and how do you sort of separate, like, the moral failings of the people waging the Vietnam War 
from like the people who were actually fighting it on the ground and like all of these different issues. And one of the things that I find really interesting about that, right, is that like in In Bruges, it's just kind of this ridiculous joke, right? Where it's like Ray starts yelling at the Canadian who he doesn't know is Canadian, who he thinks is American about the Vietnamese. And the guy is just like totally baffled and he thinks this should just be stunningly obvious. And then again, he brings it up during the like cocaine race war rant scene. But it's just kind of like this thing that's thrown in there as a joke. But then the treatment that it gets in Seven Psychopaths is very much sort of like switching from farce to tragedy, right? That you have the story of the, um, the Vietnamese, the monk who, or who turns out in Christopher Walken's version of the story to be the monk. But like you have this story that's actually in its very limited screen time, right? Like taking kind of a look at like the legacy of violence from like American intervention in Vietnam and thinking about kind of the effect that that has on people. And I think that's obviously a question that McDonough is really interested in. Yeah. Is like notions about like the legacy of violence and violence being perpetuated and the ways in which these sorts of actions like can have unforeseen consequences. Right. And I do love where he goes with it in Seven Psychopaths. Oh, yeah. I just found it, again, because I watched them, like, back-to-back, I found it so funny that he used it as a joke in one movie and then, like, actually takes it very seriously in the next movie. This may also potentially be an age thing, I think, just because I don't really know how old Martin McDonough is, but I think it's a generational thing, right? If you're the generation of our parents, it's very much kind of like an omnipresent reference. Right, because you came, like, you, it was your formative years slash, like, it directly affected people your age because your friends were Vietnam vets. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that it's not if you're, you know, us. Right. (laughs) You're, like, mid to late 20s. Hashtag millennials. (laughs) Hashtag snake people. Hashtag snake people indeed. Also, just as a final thought, as a person who really enjoys cursing, like, this speaks to me on <laughs> on just, like, a very fundamental level. Yo, agreed. Of my personality. You're, you're right. This is true. Thanks for listening to The Friendship. I'm Kate, and you can find me on Twitter at HelloKate08. And I'm Alex, and you can find me on Twitter at AlexTheParroted. You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Our theme music is I Wanna Be Your Man by The Lineup, and you can check them out at thelineup.bandcamp.com. Next time, we're going to be talking about John Sturgis's 1963 film, The Great Escape, which I'm very excited about. Me too. It's going to be full of British people. So we hope you keep tuning in, because British people are cool. Paw.